You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and not the radio station. And hey, Nick. How you doing, Anna? Good. <laughs> Bye, Ralph. Have a good afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Anna Milani, and mm-hmm. I am a local educator and a current grad student at UMass Amherst. I'm here with Nick. Nick, you want to say hi? Hey, everyone. My name is Nick. I'm a teacher up in Springfield at the high school. And last week's show, I was on the show with Corey, and we had local community member Brad Heck in the studio with us. We were talking about patriarchy and analyzing the Me Too movement. If you want to check that show out, just go to our Facebook page or our podcast, and you can hear that. Today, we are taking a look at profits made off of prison labor, specifically in Vermont, and understand what prison divestment means. We'll be airing an interview with Nico Amador from the ACLU Vermont, and we also have an interview with Bianca Tylek from the Corrections Accountability Project based out of New York City. And the Corrections Accountability Project works to eliminate commercial businesses that make huge profits off of prison and those incarcerated. Where we're going to start today is in the news in Vermont this past year is this contract that Mississippi ended up getting, beating out Rhode Island, of having the Vermonters that were incarcerated in Pennsylvania move to a private-owned prison facility uh, in Mississippi. Those prisoners were in Pennsylvania for about a year, and that contract was ending. So Mississippi won that bid, and this privately-run prison is operated by Core Civic which is the largest prison contractor in the U.S. So we're going to talk about that. And first off, we're going to play a song. And then we'll come back with uh, Nico and uh, Nick talking about the current situation around Mississippi and the Vermont uh, people that have just earlier in in October um, left the state. Uh, The name of this song is Uncle Sam, it's a show tune, but the show ain't been written for it yet. We gonna see if Tony Jerome and the band can maybe work it out for me, straighten me out right quick. Nah, I like it so far, man. Yeah. Come on, let's go. Uh, Welcome to the United Snakes. Land of the thief, home of the slave. Grand Imperial Guard, where the dollar is sacred and proud. Let's do the real, come on now. Smoke and mirrors, stripes and stars. Stoner for the cross in the name of God. Bloodshed, genocide, rape and fraud. Written to the pages of the law, good law. The cold continent latchkey child ran away one day and started acting foul. King of where the wild things are, daddy's proud. Cause the Roman Empire done passed it down. Imported and tortured the workforce and never healed the wounds or shook the curse off. Not a grown-up Goliath nation holding open auditions for the part of David. Can you feel? Nothing can save you. You question the rain, you get rushed in and chained up. Fish raised, but I must be insane. Cause I can't figure single single one is what needed this hate. But welcome to the United States. Land of the thief, home of the slave. The grand imperial guard where the dollar is sacred and power is God. Welcome to the United States, 
land of the thief, home of the slave. The Grand Imperial Guard, where the dollar is sacred and power is God. All must bow to the fat and lazy. The f will obey me, or why do they hate me? Who me? Only two generations away from the world's most despicable slavery trade. Pioneered so many ways to degrade a human being that it can't be changed to this day. Legacy so ingrained in the way that we think we no longer need chains to be slaves. Lord, it's a shameful display. The overseers even got raped along the way. Cause the children can't escape from the pain And they born with the poison, this hatred in their veins Try and separate a man from his soul You only strengthen him and lose your own But shoot that if he walk near the throne Remind him that this is my home, now I'm gone Welcome to the United States Land of the thief, home of the slave The Grand Imperial Guard Where the dollar is sacred and power is gone Welcome to the United States Land of the thief, home of the slave The Grand Imperial Guard where the dollar is sacred Hold up, give me one right here, hold up You don't give money to the bums On the corner with a sign bleeding from their gums Talking about you don't support a crackhead What you think happens to the money from your taxes? The government's the addict With a billion dollar a week kill brown people habit And even if you ain't on the front line When master yell crunch time, you right back at it Man, look at how you hustling backwards At the end of the year, add up what they subtracted Three out of twelve months, your salary pay for that madness Man, that's savage What's left, get a business plasma To see where they made Dan Bath point over them camera Only approved questions get answered Now stand up for that national anthem Welcome to the United States Land of the thief, home of the slave The Grand Imperial where the dollar is sacred and power is gone. Welcome to the United States, land of the thief, home of the slave. The Grand Imperial Guard, where the dollar is sacred and power is gone. Welcome back to Indigo Radio on air every Sunday. That was Brother Ali, Uncle Sam, Goddamn. That was a great song, Anna. Yeah. Nice pick. <laughs> All right. So today we're talking about prisons and specifically we're talking right now and we're going to speak with Nico Amador, who is a community organizer with the ACLU Vermont. Um, he organizes the Smart Justice Campaign and he'll talk a little bit about that in our interview. But I just wanted to introduce um, the interview with Nico to talk about Mississippi um, and its prison issues at the, at the moment. So Mississippi's Department of Corrections has recently been under scrutiny. The Southern Poverty Law Center has filed a suit against the DOC in Mississippi for the state's horrible prison conditions, which have uh, resulted in the death of people that are incarcerated in that state. So in August alone, there was 13 people who had been killed or who had died in prison, resulting from violent and overcrowded conditions. Um, a lack of health care provision, overdoses, and ongoing unsanitary and dangerous conditions. And so it's interesting because all of these Vermont prisoners now will be transferred to Mississippi and particularly to Tallahatchie Correctional Facility run by Core Civic. As Anna said before, it's the largest for-profit prison 
facility. I guess they run facilities. It's the largest business in the U.S. And I found uh, online a 2015 alert that was actually put out by CCA at the time, um, which is now called CoreCivic, but was was called Correctional Corporation of America at the time. And it alerted the people who were imprisoned at Tallahatchie Prison to not drink the tap water there. Um, That included using it even to brush their teeth. And so now Vermont prisoners will be sent to Tallahatchie Prison at the cost of uh, $71 a day. And that rate will be paid per day per prisoner. So we're going to go to that, uh, that interview with Nico now. And we'll be back. We're with Nico Amador. He is a community organizer for the ACLU of Vermont, and he is also the organizer of the Smart Justice campaign that's run through through the ACLU of Vermont. So we just wanted to welcome you to Indigo Radio, Nico, and thank you so much for for being with us today. Thanks, Nicole. It's great to be here. Great. Well, I would love to start out if you could just tell us a little bit about your work, the ACLU Vermont's work, um, particularly around prison. Yeah, so this year the ACLU of Vermont launched the Smart Justice Campaign, which is an initiative to try to reduce the number of people in prison in Vermont by uh, at least 50%. And we're part of the national campaign for smart justice with the ACLU that is, is working on the same goal nationally. And I think that goal really comes from an understanding that our prison system has just gotten kind of way out of hand that we used to, in the 1970s, only have about 350,000 people in our prison system. Now that's over 2 million. And, you know, and we've let the prison system grow without even really good evidence that prisons help make communities safer or address the root causes of crime. So we think it's time to reduce our reliance on prisons and really start focusing on some of the alternatives that we can use um, addiction treatment, support services for people dealing with mental health issues, bail reform, um, restorative justice, lots of other things that can be put in place um, that could serve as as alternatives to prison or to to reduce the number of people who are incarcerated who really should not be there. Great. Well, some of that work is happening around Vermont, right? That uh, restorative justice and people are uh, people are working to to have that stuff happen. But it's great that you all are uh, have this campaign, the Smart Justice campaign. Um, and so I wondered what you all um, this, like what you talk about or how you see the recent contract negotiations with Core Civic and their takeover of the out of state, the Vermonter out of state prison population. From my reading has is like around two hundred and thirty prisoners, is that correct? Yeah, I would say the numbers fluctuate, um, but I think that's a good uh, you know, good estimate of of the number of people currently. Yeah, and I'll just start by saying, you know, I think that this issue has got a lot of people's attention right now. I think a lot of people are upset about it, angry, realize that Vermont should not be contracting with an industry that makes its money off of incarcerating people and, and has a really terrible track record of abuse. Um, so I think that it's it's just been great to see that this is something that people are reacting to 
and pushing back on because we've had people who have been incarcerated uh, out, through out-of-state contracts for a number of years. This isn't a new issue, but I think it's finally getting through to people that um, it is not humane to send people so far away from their families. Um, you know, many of these people will come home eventually, and I think that um, those transitions, those relationships, the the stress of dealing with incarceration and then re-entry just gets that much harder when um, you have lost those ties to the place that you're from. So, um, so I think this is is a incredibly important issue, and I think the angle that that we're taking on it is um, we need to be protesting now and speaking out about it now. We also need the blueprint that is going to get us to a situation where we don't have to have these out-of-state contracts. And so through our Smart Justice campaign, we're starting to look at, uh, at least as an intermediate goal, you know, what would it mean to end these out-of-state contracts? What kinds of changes would we need to make in our current system so that we don't have overcrowding in Vermont prisons and that we can keep those uh, those people here while supporting other other people to transition out of prison and into other kinds of services or supervision or transitional housing. And that stuff also is a little bit difficult from my understanding that the housing budget has been cut. And so there are a lot of people who are in prison currently whose sentences maybe have finished, but they don't have a clearance on housing. And so they're still in prison. Is that correct? That's right. And my understanding is, you know, at any given time, there's maybe about a hundred people or so who have served out their minimum sentence and and could be eligible for release, but um, they don't have approved housing um, that would allow them to make that that transition onto parole. And and from my understanding, you know, the housing guidelines and the the things that they look for to approve housing are pretty strict. And so I think that is an an area that we could be looking at is how many of those those rules are, are really necessary. Could that be relaxed some to open up more options for people to be able to access housing in order to be released? And so maybe can you describe for us the prison conditions um, in Vermont and maybe talk about the significant differences between like a core civic prison where we're sending prisoners out of state, as you said, to um, an industry that makes its money incarcerating people. Um, to like a business out of state versus the state prisons here in Vermont? Is there a difference? Yeah, you know, what I want to start by saying on that is I think for many people who experience incarceration, regardless of where they are and, and what the specific conditions are, I think people can really experience that as a, a dehumanizing experience, um, an experience that doesn't necessarily help people address the root causes of why they may have caused harm in the first place. Um, in lots of instances, it can add to people's trauma and just create more barriers to um, to being able to make the changes they need to make to be able to move on with their life. So I think that's important to say when we're talking about conditions. Um, what I can say about Core Civic, which is previously known as CCA or the Corrections Corporation of America, um, they have a long track record of abuse, of medical neglect, of mismanagement. Um, they've had multiple lawsuits against them for poor non-existent medical care. 
resulting in preventable deaths. Um, they've been sued for doing strip searches and mass, um, for forcing the labor of immigrants who are detained. Um, they've been sued for holding people in facilities without running water. So yeah, there is a really long track record and, you know, a, a litany of abuses that CoreCivic has been responsible for. And I think that's part of the reason why uh, Vermonters are so outraged that we would be spending our tax dollars to support this kind of company. Um, and I, I think it, you know, it is a real issue when we're talking about contracting with private prisons. Lots of prisons, whether they're state-run or private, can have terrible conditions, but I think private prisons have an incentive to lower their overhead, to do everything they can, cut every corner that they can in order to make the profits that they're seeking to make. And I think that's that's part of the difference, and that's part of why um, so many private prisons uh, have, you know, documented much more uh, worse abuses and, and situations. And so some of the reasons from my own reading that I've seen um, for for looking for new out-of-state contracts were the death of four Vermonters in the Pennsylvania prisons. Is that, is that correct? Or was that kind of just the contract had run out and so they were looking for a new state and these things had happened and so that that pushed the government to look for a different prison to house prisoners in? Yeah, I mean, I I can't speak to the specifics of the decision and, and why it was made, but I think you're absolutely right. There had also been a lot of concerns raised about deaths that had happened at Camp Hill in Pennsylvania and the conditions there. So, mm. you know, all around it's a bad situation, and I think that's, that's why we want to really focus the conversation not on State, you know, getting people into state-run prison versus a private prison or, um, you know, any other kind of configuration, but but really saying, number one, we shouldn't be having out-of-state contracts um, for, you know, people who are from Vermont. Uh, and secondly, we should really be looking to reduce the number of people in prison overall because prisons just are not places that allow people to thrive, allow people to change, and allow people to make the choices that are are going to be healthy for their, their families, for their communities going forward. Mississippi Goddamn our last tune. We had some requests for it. Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Can't you see it? I know you can feel it Can't stand the pressure much longer. Somebody say a prayer. Alabama's got me so upset, and Governor Wallace has made me lose my rest. Everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. 
sitting in jail. Black cat crossed my path. I think every day's gonna be my last. Lord have mercy on the land of mine. We all gonna get it in due time. I don't belong here. I don't belong there. I've even stopped believing in prayer. Don't tell me, I'll tell you. Me and my people just about do. I've been there, so I know they keep on saying go slow. That's just the trouble. Do so. Washing the windows. Do so. Picking the cotton. Do so. We're just playing rotten. Do so. We're too damn lazy. Do so. Mississippi Goddamn, and this is Anna and Nick for Indigo Radio. Nina Simone is one of Indigo Radio's favorites. You can always be promised a Nina Simone song. If you are just joining us, today we're talking about prison profits, privatization of prisons, labor, and prison divestment, which we'll get to toward the end. And we just listened to an interview with Nick and Nico from the ACLU. Vermont talking about the current transfer of Vermont people from Pennsylvania to Mississippi. That actually happened already. It happened in the first two weeks of October. And Nico was talking a lot about the conditions within prison, uh, specifically with a core civic prison, which is a privately owned facility in Mississippi. One of the things uh, I'm going to have Nick talk a little bit more about is conditions of labor within prisons. We had done a couple shows on the national prison strike a while back. That took place between September 
or August and September of this year. One of the uh, main asks around that was to draw attention to the working conditions and what often is called slave labor within the U.S. prisons and jails. So, Nick, can you talk to us a little bit about that and some of the things that you found? Sure. So, of course, I think it's really important for us historically to understand um, at the end, after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, the 13th Amendment outlawed slavery, right? And also, if you take a closer look at that amendment, it also encoded slavery into our Constitution as a, as a form of punishment for crime. And so what happened after that were, was the mass imprisonment of black people in the South um, who worked on, in convict labor on chain gangs. And so now, today, that takes a different form. A lot of times we are, we're hearing about rehabilitation programs and how prison is a place for rehabilitation for prisoners. And so a lot of times that rehabilitation is actually in the form of a work camp. So those arrested are often offered reduced sentences if they work in a work camp. So that means like the day, one day that you work in a work camp is one day off your sentence. And so a lot of people, even before they're convicted, choose to go and or are sent by judges to work camps. And those work camps can include, uh, they range from like Coca-Cola bottling plants to construction firms and sites, to nursing homes. Um, And there was a recent report by Reveal News Network that is about Simmons Food Incorporated, whose revenue is about 1.4 billion annually. And so this private company runs a chicken farm in Oklahoma, and they have um, partnered up with a Christian rehabilitation group. And so that Christian rehabilitation group is quote-unquote called a drug rehabilitation program for people who are supposed to be going uh, essentially to prison. And so what's interesting is that Simmons Food, they sell to Walmart, they sell to KFC, Popeye's, PetSmart, but the working conditions in their factories are abhorrent. People who work in that work camp have been maimed by machines, they've been gnarled by metal shackles. There's a whole report that you can, um, that you can read online. And some of, only some of those sent by the DOC are able to keep their wages. So people go and work there, um, and they don't get paid. And in the work camp, many of those people have not even been convicted of crimes, and some have even had their cases dismissed, which, of course, um, we can talk for a long time, I think, about the issue of bail, but that will have to be a whole other show. Um, so Simmons workers... In Oklahoma, what's interesting about the Simmons case specifically is that the workers in the factory plants have been laid off. So people who are not in prison, right? People who are not working at this work camp, people who work for Simmons as people working for wage have been laid off. That's happened in tandem with Simmons expanding its use of this free labor provided by the state from prisons. And so the company is saving money, essentially. They don't pay medical care or costs, they don't pay payroll taxes, and they don't pay workers' compensation. And so there's a huge benefit for this private corporation that's making tons and billions of dollars every year, but tons and tons of money off of the free labor of people who are um, in the corrections, in the correction system. Something else else that's interesting that actually Anna pointed me to was Unicor. And Unicor was created in 1934 
through an executive order signed into law by President Roosevelt. It's actually Executive Order 6917. Essentially, the U.S. government, the federal government, established a corporation. And in the language of that document, it says that prison workshops won't compete with private industry and that this will provide rehabilitation and skills to the prison population. So I looked up Unicor to see what is it that they are producing? What is it that prisoners are making in their, um, in their workshops? There's a whole list of products, including Department of Defense products, and that includes body armor and helmets and military gloves. They run recycling programs. They manufacture furniture and clothing and solar panels. Um, they run call centers. And so people who work for Unicord that are in prison are getting paid 23 cents per hour usually, working 12 to 14 hour shifts, and essentially are put in a position where they cannot say no to, to working. And the idea uh, and the mission actually that's listed on Unicor's website is to protect society and reduce crime by preparing inmates for successful re-entry through job training. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. The first problem is that prison workers, when they leave prison, have to check a box on their job applications saying, I'm a convicted felon, which usually means that most people don't hire them. And what's interesting about the Simmons case, and just in general from reading about lawsuits that have been filed against the federal government by private industry, is that a lot of workers in the, that are working in private industry uh, and private manufacturing are being laid off because of the competition between Unicor and private companies. And so that means that when people get out of prison, there actually won't be jobs because most of the production is happening inside of prison because it's cheaper. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that we have to really look closely at what the purpose prison labor fills for our country because I know my, my grandfather used to talk about this, that back in his day, there were so many jobs. There were so many jobs in our hometown in, in Waterbury. And there were factories there. And so those jobs have disappeared. And since those jobs have disappeared, Waterbury has become poorer and poorer. And so what he says is like, China's taken all of our production uh, overseas. But really, there's hidden production that's happening here in this country. And corporations are making billions of dollars using laws and imprisonment as a way to profit off of people's labor. So the last part that I just wanted to chat about, that I just wanted to talk about here, was specifically Vermont and Vermont work camps. So there are work camps that exist in Vermont, and um, one of them is Caledonia Work Camp, which is in St. Johnsbury. It was just recently reopened um, at the end of last year. It has 112 beds. And then we have Vermont Corrections Industries, which is something similar to Unicor, but it's not as large of a corporation. And so it's run out of Northern State Correctional Facility in Newport, where there's a print shop, a wood shop, a sign shop, and a license plate shop. And so it's the same kind of mission that Unicor has to give people uh, who are in prison skills. But the work is mostly menial. It's mostly like the work would be in most factories these days, right? You make one part over and over and over again. 
And so there's not real skill that's involved in doing that. And it's important for us to read through those lines to see what's actually happening, but that labor is hidden inside of a prison. And lastly, just Windsor Prison. Windsor Prison was closed, actually, but the prisoners at Windsor's prison used to do all the work on um, all the landscaping work for ball fields, all the landscaping work for cemeteries. They built holding cells in the police station. They painted the fire station. And so the state is saving money by forcing laborers who are imprisoned to work for next to nothing. And I think it's interesting also, Anna, you had a piece that you wanted to share. Maybe you can share that with us about Vermont laws. And Also, I just want to say one of the things that it's actually that 60%, and I would say probably more, of formerly incarcerated people are unemployed. So this whole thing around places like Unicor or these other work camps they come out with this rhetoric that people are going to learn skills to then take with them. The skill that they're learning is how to work in a chicken factory. Mm -hmm. So that would be what they might be doing. But again, like you said, they're also checking the box that they have a felon. So that's going to shut them out of a lot of employment. And so, yeah, there's huge unemployment among those people that have been incarcerated. Uh, One of the things that we wanted to just talk about in Vermont too, are these pay to stay statutes So this is something that is on the national level where a pay-to-stay charges people a daily fee while they're incarcerated. What I'm going to talk about in a minute is that most people that fill our jails and prisons are poor people. So on top of that, they're being charged a fee to actually stay in the prisoner jail. And this can be anywhere from $40 to the highest I saw was in California, which is $142 a, a night to stay in the jail or prison. And I was reading a story where, just to give you an example, a guy, this was in Ohio, he had, first of all, he was incarcerated for possession. He had been struggling for addiction, with addiction for years. And by the time he got out, he had $21,000 in debt to pay the jail that he was staying at. And in that same article, there were people that had debts as high as um, $25,000 and $35,000. 41 states charge room and board in prison and jails, and these can be criminal lab fees, administrative fees, and medical expenses. Proponents say this is a win for taxpayers. And actually, one of the things that you were talking about reminded me of the Maricopa County Jail, where... And this goes into these work camps where they actually call them chain gangs there. And there's a woman's uh, facility where women are, they can either choose to be in segregation, which means 23 hours in a cell, or they can choose to be on a chain gang. And that chain gang goes out and buries poor people. And it just made me think about this too, because the way that that was talked about was that was also a win for taxpayers. So taxpayers don't need to pay for the burial of poor people. It's that these women incarcerated are going to be burying them. You know, Nick and I were talking about this before, is that that way the Maricopa County Jail can say this isn't uh, slavery. This isn't, they're not being forced to do it. They're being given a choice. And the choice is between being stuck in a cell for 23 hours or being outside. And so many of the women choose to be outside. Um, Mm. So just another way to think about these labor conditions where Nick was talking about these chicken factories, some people choose to go there because they don't want to go to jail. 
not knowing what the conditions um, may be, and it's a, a lose-lose situation. So back to the pay-to-stay, just to read, um, to give you an Avant Vermont example, actually in the statute of their earnings, which in Vermont, you know, they're going to be paid something from 40 cents to $1.50 an hour, says an inmate participating in a work release program shall cause to be given to the commissioner for the inmate's total earnings less payroll deductions authorized by law, including income taxes, upon receipt of the earnings to the commissioner to the extent reasonable may deduct an amount determined to be equivalent to the cost of providing for the living expenses of the inmate. Now that's a whole bunch of like law jargon, but I think what, which I think is interesting too. I feel like that these things are made that you don't understand them. Mm -hmm. And I had to dig for this, but what it's saying is that a prisoner's wage or whatever you want to call it, right, payment, there can be a, an amount taken out of that to pay for um, the living expenses and the upkeep of the, of the jail, which is interesting. And so you said before, Anna, that a lot of people who are going to prison are poor, and so then they're being made to pay or being indebted to the state as they come out. And so that's not necessarily helping their... Uh, their situation or, or rehabilitating them. And so I wondered if you could go back to that idea of who is it that, that is going to prison? Yeah, and I think this is important because there's a lot of ways that the poor of this country are paying for the upkeep and functioning of prisons, also contributing to city budgets. And just to give you a little bit of an overview, about 80 to 90% of people charged with a felony are found to be poor by the court. And there was a 2014 prison policy initiative study that the average person had an annual income of 19000 about 19000 a little over that, that was going through the jails and prisons. 75% of reentries have a history of addiction. So when you couple living in poverty with addiction, with limited treatment options, uh, it's a disaster for a total revolving door back into the system. There's also a recent report this summer that said 10%, uh, people who have been incarcerated are 10 times more likely to be homeless. And one of the things you have to look at is actually how this happened and what do we mean when we say the criminalization of poverty. So a while back, the, there was a push for, in order to get more city revenue where cities' budgets were cut, they started relying on fines and fees um, and court costs, and police also had quotas they had to meet. And Ferguson, Missouri, actually was a, a big uh, spot. There was a big spotlight on that city, and this was before the killing of uh, Michael Brown in 2014. So Ferguson, 20% of its city budget comes from fines and fees. And this is being enforced by a lot of um, the criminalization of uh, poor black people. So in that city, there's a 95% of the force is white, and it's a 70% black population. So that just gives an example of um, how this is also entwined with city budgets. Another thing is that when we think about bail, Nick mentioned bail before, 500,000 people are in jail every day because they can't afford bail. So the other thing along with that is many people end up pleading guilty because um, that actually is able to get them out rather than sitting, waiting, because they can't pay the bail. So they plead guilty, some of their time has been served, and then they actually get out. The other thing, too, is, is when we talk about um, what it actually looks like for people that are struggling, people that are poor are way more likely to 
have fines and fees around sleeping in public. 43% um, of cities make it illegal to sleep in vehicles. Uh, poor people are way more likely to get minor traffic violations, jaywalking or trespassing. And of course, they're arrested for addiction because the thing is, is that you're seeing it more. It's outside. So things that are just human survival are completely criminalized. Mm -hmm. And one last thing I just want to point to just to show how sort of systemic this is is that we have to look at also welfare and how people are penalized on welfare. So in 1996, Clinton had this legislation, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act, and that actually what it did was it ended federally funded welfare benefits and replaced it with what are called block grants, and that is then decided state by state. So the states can then enforce punitive measures around welfare and people receiving welfare. So for instance, just to give you an example of that, some people donate plasma to get a little bit of extra money. If they are receiving food stamps and they have been found to sell plasma to get a little bit of extra money to help them, that is a violation of food stamps and they can be cut off food stamps. And so you can see how welfare being criminalized often then leads to what is deemed here as uh, a crime. It's to say you're stealing for food or your feel that you have to sell yourself to get money. I mean, there's all these things that uh, have a sort of trickle effect on that. The other thing I just want to point out about that is that what Clinton also did was he put a lifetime limit of five years for families to re receive TANF, and TANF is temporary assistance for needy families. Right now, today, we have 43 million people in poverty and only 3 million people receive TANF. So that's one, less than 1% of the population, which totally also debunks a lot of people's rhetoric around people just living off the system and whatever that means. So I think there's lots of ways that we can see that prisons and jails become just dumping grounds for poor people for a society that has no solution right now to poverty. And it's important, I think, to name and understand who actually makes up this population. Mm -hmm. And it's also important to understand that prisoners are not just people who we think of as criminals, right? That they're people who are struggling yeah. on the street. And I think that's, that's a great point that you made, that there's people sleeping outside. There's people sleeping outside in Brattleboro. Right. With that being said, we're going to go to our third song and come back for, uh, to play our interview with Bianca. This song's called Abolish Legal Slavery. Yes, from Attica, business of course, America, striking so 
Okay, welcome back. This is Indigo Radio, and that was uh, a song called Abolish Legal Slavery by Mo Shinola of Kansas City, and it actually came out to coincide with the national prison strike. We are going to go to an interview that I did with Bianca Tylek from New York City, and she is with the Corrections Accountability Project. She is talking about uh, prison divestment and what that means. Bianca, can you give us an overview of the work that the Corrections Accountability Project does and how this organization came about? Sure. So at the Corrections Accountability Project, we work uh, specifically to eliminate the influence of commercial interests on the criminal legal system and end the exploitation of justice-involved people. So what that means is that any way in which the criminal legal system is used as a vehicle to extract money and resources out of communities of color and communities of poverty, that's work that's in our wheelhouse. We do our work in two main formats. One is by through public education and exposing the harms committed by the commercialization of justice. So in that area, most recently we published a report in April that exposed over 3,100 companies that operate in the prison industrial complex, including 550 publicly traded companies or or subsidiaries of publicly traded companies. We also published a report uh, in June called Immigration Detention uh, and American Business um, that also details sort of the overlap between the prison industrial complex and and, uh, immigration detention, of which there's a significant amount. And then in our other uh, avenue of work, uh, we do advocacy and activism and organizing uh, to empower and equip change agents with the tools uh, to challenge the prison industrial complex. And so we view just about anyone uh, in society as a possible change agent, um, whether you're uh, a layperson totally in their own world that can pick up a sign and go to a rally, um, or you're a litigator that uh, wants to challenge um, some of these companies um, in the courtroom, or you're an artist um, that wants to speak to the issue, speak to the issue, or draw about the issue. All and everyone uh, has some role that they can play in challenging this industry. Um, and so, to give a quick example of something that we've done. In this area, past summer, um, in July and August, we were able to pass legislation in New York City, making New York City the first uh, and only jurisdiction in the country to make all calls out of its uh, city jails free. That uh, legislation on a conservative um, estimate will save directly impacted communities roughly $10 million uh, a year here in New York City and likely a bit, uh, a ton more, uh, and not to mention, obviously, open lines of communication for for the many people um, who weren't able to communicate at all because of the cost. Great. Now, I was going to ask you just a follow-up question about the phone calls. I was just looking at that, and can you explain, I think a lot of people don't know that uh, inmates are paying for phone calls or how that works. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? So people who are incarcerated um, generally uh, have to pay in order to communicate with their loved ones. So obviously, uh, as a person on the outside, you can't call into a jail facility or a prison facility, but people on the inside can call out. And generally, when they're calling out, the server needs to use things that collect. I mean, that's still an option, but um, most systems have now moved to some kind of prepaid system uh, where there are companies like GTL and Securus that intentionally exploit the confinement of people um, as an opportunity to charge their families 
exorbitant rates to communicate with them, sometimes as high as $15 for 15-minute phone call. Wow. And I just want to go back also to this April 2018 report the, on mapping private prison players. And one of the things that you had mentioned was this publicly traded companies. Can you – I am actually not sure what that means. Will you talk about that and then also the industrial sectors that profit, if you can give some examples that profit off of mass incarceration? Sure. So what we mean by publicly traded companies are companies that – have stock that trades stock market, where as an individual, you can go and purchase stock in these companies. These companies, significant portion of all that that is on the stock market is is owned by the public. And so, so those companies are specifically exposed to public markets um, like the stock market. With regard to your second question around the industries and sectors, and to give you a few examples, one of my, my favorite examples, just because I think it it's home for folks and and it's relatable is the specifically like something like Stanley Black and Decker. So Stanley Black and Decker is most well known for screwdrivers and hammers and things like that and, and I'm sure you know many people listening have one of those tools. So Stanley Black and Decker also has an entire division dedicated to making detention hardware. So that means they uh, make prison doors, um, the types of doors that are specifically made for solitary confinement where, you know, somebody's entire livelihood passes through a slot in the door. They make bars and uh, and walls and windows and things for prison facilities. Right. And so I'm just thinking, too, how you were thinking about the publicly traded companies is that companies are making profit, but also individuals then that have stock in these companies are making profit, and that's part of the divestment process, Right. Like, I'm guessing right. people don't even so, know sometimes the companies that they have investments in are actually making profit off of those incarcerated. Yeah, so that's 100% true. A lot of people don't know that their assets are being put to use in this way. So, like, what do we mean by that? So, a lot of people may not know. So, I'll give you a, a, a great example. Take Vanguard, for example. Vanguard is the fourth largest retirement 401k manager in the country, right? Which means a lot of people own Vanguard stock and own Vanguard funds. Vanguard is also the single largest institutional owner of the two biggest private prison companies in the country, uh, mm-hmm. GeoGroup and CoreCivic, uh, owning as much as 18% of each of these companies single-handedly. And so as an investor in Vanguard, for example, um, you're supporting uh, the investment in private prisons and immigration detention centers. Um, so very, very commonly you'll see people owning either things like the like stock directly in some of those companies like CoreCivic or the financiers like Vanguard that are supporting their, uh, their structures. Uh, and you'll also see it in your mutual funds, right? Like a number of mutual funds have uh, stock in many of these companies I mean, I think, you know, people are always shocked to find out what companies operate in this space. CenturyLink is a major cell phone provider uh, in the South and in the West um, and also has a major prison telephone company. So, you know, investments in those companies also are invested in the prison industrial complex. And where is this traced back to? So when you when you talk about these forces that 
began private entities conducting business with jails and uh, prisons. When does that go back to, when does that begin and why? Sure. So that started roughly um, in the 1980s, sort of the beginning of the privatization of the, you know, entire prison industry. Uh, And it's, I mean, to be fair, it was the beginning of privatization and the emergence um, of, or I should say the dominance of privatization across uh, all industries and markets, not just mass incarceration and mm-hmm. and mass surveillance, right? Um, but privatization was emerging very strongly um, throughout all sectors, uh, education, healthcare, and all these different things. And so, you know, prison became one more of those. Okay. When you have discussions with your project and with your people there, what's the thinking around reinvestment with vulnerable communities? So we're divesting, but then is there reinvestment in the community or that is that the hope for that absolutely so you know we talk about divestment and divestment is is critical so that our assets are not you know causing harm but another critical part of that is obviously reinvesting in the communities that have been exploited through investments in mass incarceration and so we are working with community partners um, throughout Boston to really think about what does reinvestment mean. So when something divests, what are things that can be um, reinvested in uh, reinvesting in minority and women-owned businesses, for example, um, or just you know into the communities that have been targeted by the criminal legal system. Mm-hmm. And just lastly, because I'm so I'm a student at UMass and part of the UMass. Amherst divestment campaign that we're starting to have conversations around. You have this larger Divest Boston campaign, and can you just tell us about that? And what are some of the what are some things that the schools are doing? Sure. So um, we are working with a coalition of organizations in uh, the greater Boston area. Uh, over 40 um, organizations, firms, groups have signed on to a, like a, a campaign statement um, calling for the broad divestment of Boston assets and, and greater um, sort of Massachusetts assets from the prison industrial complex. So that includes university groups. It includes uh, socially responsible investment firms, um, includes safe-based communities, nonprofits, grassroots organizers, um, and so others. Uh, and so with the universities, we are working with students, student organizers, powerful students, across uh, a number of schools, New Mass, obviously, and a number of the schools out in Western Mass that we've had uh, connection with students at Smith, students at at Amherst, and then others, many in the Boston area, so at Harvard, at MIT, at Tufts, at Northeastern, at BU, um, all who are working uh, to push their administrations, their uh, university corporations to divest their endowments from the prison industrial complex. Um, and we're talking quite a substantial amount of money in the Massachusetts and greater Boston area um, that is accessible and and discussing this type of divestment. Um, and it follows mm-hmm. on the heels of schools that have divested. I mean, Columbia University uh, made real uh, headlines when, it, uh, when the students there who organized um, were able to divest and get that uh, their uh, university endowment to divest from the prison industrial complex, was specifically uh, in that case private prison. And when was that? That was around that was 2015, 2016. Okay, great. 
Okay, Bianca, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. Okay, that was Bianca Tylek from the Corrections Accountability Project in New York talking to us about the uh, prison divestment campaigns that they are doing. Okay, and just to wrap up the show, Anna, I'd love to ask you, what are your thoughts about prison divestment? Well, I think that prison divestment should certainly happen. I think that it's a place to concentrate within this whole sort of structure of the prison industrial complex is to look at private prisons. Also, a lot of what you talked about, Nick, around labor and the profits that are made with these companies is that this is like one place to sort of look at and say, um, where can we work to try and, and divest from this? I think that when we think about reinvestment I th- and thinking about prisons is also for me the constant question of what are prisons for? Why do we have prisons? And what is their specific function within the capitalist economic system? Because for me, you can't talk about prisons without talking about capitalism. And I think today's conversation really leads me to that thought. I mean, when you're, you know, we start talking about prison labor, Nick, you you covered a lot on that. And then I was talking a lot about who is in prison and it's poor people in prison. Mm -hmm. And like I said before, we are living uh, in a time, and I think this has been for a long time, where there's no solution to poverty. And so the solution is putting, locking people up. Mm -hmm. And I think that capitalism can't have a solution to poverty because it's, necessary to the functioning of the system. And the way that I understand that is that capitalism is an economic system that accumulates profit and needs to to keep functioning. And you can't have that without having people be poor because you can't make wealth without people being poor within this current system. And so that's one of the ways I think about it. So for me, I know we talk a lot about we need more treatment centers, we need more housing, um, people need to have nutritious food, people need to have better health care, and all of those things we absolutely need. And we need to continue to push to look at why is it that we don't have enough housing, uh, why are people poor, and what is it uh, about this, the very system that we live within that makes that actually impossible to happen. It's, it's a contradiction that can't be solved unless we're looking at different ways to organize our lives. Right, and maybe if we called people incarcerated workers rather than prisoners, our political conscious around this particular piece of this entire pie of our economic system would possibly also change. Yeah, and I agree with you on that because I think that the rhetoric and a lot of the discourse around prisons is a lot about reform or rehabilitation, which instantly says that People are in prison because of their own fault, and they need to be fixed. They need to behave in a certain way without looking at what are the conditions of their lives that led them to prison, and how do we define criminality? So I think those are important questions for us to keep on asking. Great. Well, that'll have to be another show. Yeah, because we're out of time. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for joining us on Indigo Radio today. Next week, Lauren and Becca will be talking about dams and the effects that dams have on people and the environment, making connections from Vermont to Lesotho to India. Thanks so much. And actually, one thing that we just want to make sure that we tell people about is that the Green Mountain uh, Crossroads has an out in the open summit. And on Friday, November 9th, it's for LGBTQ-identified people. 
Um, Nico, actually from the ACLU, is going to be there with Ashley, and they're going to be talking about prisons, repression, and the LGBT community. So that's something to look for. It'll be on the GMC website, and we can also post a link to that. Okay, thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.